It's time for another critique, and I got my drink to keep my voice from getting sore. And, oh crap, it's still got the label. I can, maybe if I, no, that's a bad idea. There you go, now I won't get demonetized for drinking this in the video, right? Let's hope. Hello everyone, welcome back to another critique. This one is for Batman Arkham City. Now, if you haven't played the game, I wanna warn you, first and foremost, we're gonna spoil everything. And if you think I mean most things, no, I mean everything. We're gonna be going through the story, we're gonna be going through all of the gameplay mechanics, how these two things work together, where the series came from, and where it's going. We're gonna talk about everything. So once again, if you haven't played the game before, I highly recommend you go over to Steam or whatever your platform of choice is. You buy the full Game of the Year edition with all of the DLC and everything, play through it, and then come back to this video. It'll be waiting for you. But before we jump into it, I feel like I should stress that I consider this game to be an absolute masterpiece, one of the best games ever made, and I don't use the term masterpiece lightly. I mean it when I say it, but with that being said, I'm still going to tackle a lot of different subjects in this video. I'm going to critique, I'm going to analyze, I'm going to do whatever the heck I feel like in the moment, and that's not meant to discourage you from playing the game, or it's not meant to, to tear down the game. It's meant to look at a game that I love dearly and try to tear it apart, find out some interesting stuff and figure out how it works and why it works that way. And for those of you who are not aware, I already discussed Batman Arkham Asylum. A link to that will be in the description and a card should pop up right about now. And for those of you who are interested, I will be discussing Batman Arkham Origins next. So make sure to subscribe if you're interested in seeing when that comes out and being one of the first people to watch it. I know I'm impatient with YouTube creators that I enjoy. And if you happen to be one of those people who enjoys my content amazingly, then I recommend you do that. But with all that junk said, let's just jump right on into it, shall we? Even though it likely doesn't need to be said, Batman Arkham City basically improves on every single element of Batman Arkham Asylum. Everything from the combat to the open world to the main story and the side quests and even the traversal system. And most impressively to me is the fact that this game feels as though it could be played right after Batman Arkham Asylum without any sort of jolt. What I mean by that is that all of the gameplay mechanics carry over so you start where you left off at the end of the first game. Rocksteady didn't take away any gameplay mechanics and force you to relearn them like some games do. Instead, they left you right where you were before and allow you to develop the character beyond that point. For people who didn't play the first game, it feels as though it's just a continuation of a story that has been ongoing since Batman was created. And for those of us who played the first game, it feels like a very fluid experience that's interconnected. And we'll talk a little bit more about that design choice later. Now, as I said at the start of the video, I consider the Game of the Year edition of Batman Arkham City to be the definitive version and Rocksteady does too. The reason I consider this to be the version you need to play if you haven't played it already is because the Catwoman DLC that launched with the game originally with GameStop editions and some physical editions, it, it was really bizarre and I can't find exact details on which copies launched with it and didn't. You need to play through the Catwoman sections. There's entire areas that are specifically designed for Catwoman. She has her own moveset entirely, own combat system. It's phenomenal and if you haven't experienced it, pause the video, go do that. I promise you won't be disappointed. Like while I was scripting and getting this video ready, I showed my roommate clips of me playing Batman Arkham City that I was going to be using in the video. 
and he saw the Catwoman sections and had no idea that was a thing because when the game came out, he played it, it launched, and I guess he didn't get the edition that had the Catwoman sections, so he just never experienced it. And if the game were coming out now, I would talk about how exclusivity deals like this are a bad thing and bad for the industry, but you know what? It's so long ago. This game launched in 2011. It's not really worth anybody's time to do that. Rocksteady's moved on, and, and so instead, we're just going to say that the Game of the Year edition that includes these segments is the definitive edition, and that's what we're going to be critiquing. Now, Batman Arkham City takes place roughly one year after the events of the first game. Quincy Sharp, the dude who ran Arkham Asylum, took full credit for the prevention of the Joker's escape and basically everything that Batman did during the first game. And then he used this new cachet to campaign, eventually becoming mayor of all of Gotham. Now, having seen the shortcomings of the asylum firsthand, he then ordered the closure of the asylum and of Blackgate Penitentiary as well. He then has the city government buy all of the slums of the city in one district and then convert them all into a mega prison wherein the prisoners are basically allowed to go and do whatever they want. Now, I don't think you need me to explain to you how that makes no sense for a city government to do, but you know, we'll circle back to it. Now, once this was done, a guy by the name of Hugo Strange was put in place as the head honcho of the new asylum, which was deemed Arkham City. As far as we know, at the beginning of the game, he was basically put in charge of this area and ordered to prevent escapes and maintain a rough balance within the prison without interfering too much and disturbing the general zeitgeist of the community. You know you're a YouTuber who's desperate to sound intelligent when you use the word zeitgeist in a video game review. Now eventually you find out that Strange manipulated Sharp into doing all of this for his own reasons. These reasons being that Rachel Gould teamed up with Strange in order to eliminate the prisoners once and for all, purifying the city of all of these terrible criminals, a plan that they codenamed Protocol 10. Now of course all of this is highly condensed, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the details of it in a second. But first, I want to stress how much the idea of Arkham City doesn't actually make any sense at all. Firstly, this is prime real estate. It's in the heart of Gotham City. You can see the other buildings just on the other side of the wall. Why did they buy this out as a prison instead of just buying it out, renovating it, and then perhaps using some of the proceeds that they garnered after the fact to buy a cheap plot of land far outside of town away from civilization and put the prisoners there? Furthermore, if Quincy Sharp was arguing to the city council, for instance, that the asylum and Blackgate penitentiary were out of date and were dilapidated to the point where they could no longer fulfill their obligations to society and to the prisoners, why wouldn't he just have all of those detention centers renovated at a cost that would surely be far, far less than buying out a huge section of the city, building giant walls around it, and then hiring armed guards to patrol the border to make sure nobody gets out. I mean, not to mention that this also has to have a hugely negative impact on the tourist value of the city. I mean, are we just going to ignore that? Didn't think so. Tourism. Smart. Now, I understand that the Asylum left much to be desired. In fact, the entire first game basically serves to prove to the player that the Asylum is out of date, is old, dilapidated, breaking down, and is incapable of serving its purpose. But we didn't get to see any issues with Blackgate. 
Sure, we hear rumblings about it in the first game and how it clearly isn't as inescapable as previously believed, but surely it isn't better than just throwing everyone into a giant district of Gotham with a huge wall around the edge. And yes, Sharp was being manipulated when he did this, but how in the hell did he get the city council to go for this? I mean, let's just say that they all got paid off or convinced or both. This would be a literal career suicide for anybody to become involved with, especially because it seems that the new mayor is a literal dictator. In the opening scene of the game, Bruce Wayne is announcing a new political campaign to close Arkham City down. Watch. In a few moments, Bruce Wayne will be live on stage to explain his sudden interest in Gotham politics. The infamous Playboy millionaire has never been one it's to- billionaire, Vicky. Millionaires are so last year. I assume that you thought yourself untouchable. Well, as you can see, no one is untouchable. Thank you! Thank you, Gotham! Imprisoned behind these walls, gang leaders are fighting a bloody war in the middle of our once great city. Every inmate from Arkham Asylum and Blackgate Prison has been relocated to this facility. How can this be safe for the people of Gotham? Shut Arkham City down. It's out of control. Shut it down. By the end of tonight, I will be a hero. Just like you. Batman. Today, I'm starting the campaign to close Arkham City and make Gotham safe again. Remember, Wayne is the priority target. Surround him! Hands in the air, Wayne. We have Wayne. Target secured. He's literally kidnapped at gunpoint while reporters stand feet away. Now I get it, it's supposed to be a dark and gritty world wherein corruption is rampant and backhanded political moves are the norm. However, this isn't backhanded. This is a full frontal assault. I mean, why couldn't Strange have just let Wayne finish his speech and then get ushered into a limo that Strange's tiger security forces had taken over or put sleeping gas in, make him pass out and then capture him that way? Why did they have to do it in such a public invisible way? I suppose you can make the argument that Strange was trying to make an example of Bruce Wayne for speaking up against the asylum, therefore kidnapping him in a very, very public way. But it seems as though pragmatically that is far and away the worst possible way of doing this. As with all shady political dealings, the most important element is plausible deniability. Do something horrible and everybody knows that you did something horrible, but leave it just vague enough where people think, well, we can't really prove that he did it, but he definitely did it. Like, I don't know, shooting a former staffer in the back in a botched robbery and then not stealing anything. Or leaving somebody who is set to testify against you dead in their office with two self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head in what is apparently a suicide. With two bullet holes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go down to the comments. I'm sure people are going wild. Anyway, another element of this is that if Strange's intention is to prevent Bruce Wayne from interfering with Protocol 10, because after all, he is Batman, and that's why he was apparently kidnapped in the first place, why would he willingly introduce him to the prisoner population? 
He knows he's Batman and will likely get out and do his own thing instantly, in which case, why bother capturing him in the first place? Which takes us all the way back to the theory that perhaps this was just a show of force and a demonstration to the public that you don't mess or criticize with Arkham City. Or maybe it's just to put Wayne in his place and remind him that Strange knows who he is. But if the ultimate purpose was to capture Wayne so that Batman couldn't interfere with Protocol 10, which as far as we know is what the motivation was, why not just put a bullet in his head to end it for good? Or if we're being moral, because you know, it's not like we're about to kill thousands of people, why not just lock him up in a room chained to a concrete slab naked with an explosive set to go off if he moves off the slab with like a laser thing pointed down because lasers are cool. You know what, let's also throw in some armed guards that are paid huge sums to keep rifles aimed at him for the whole night, just until Protocol 10 has fully completed. Seriously, it's not that hard. I should be a supervillain. But as with a lot of these types of things, when it comes to superheroes and comic book stories and video games in general, the best excuse and explanation of these things is just to say, it's just a game. It doesn't have to make sense. We're setting the stage for a fun gameplay experience that ties into a narrative that motivates that gameplay experience. And it doesn't need to make perfect sense or to be the next Citizen Kane. It's okay to have some holes here and there. If anything, it adds flavor and humanity. And before you comment, yes, I know that sentence barely made any sense at all. Water. Anyways, a ton of big names are in the game. The Joker, the Riddler, the Mad Hatter, Two-Face, Catwoman, Clayface, Penguin, Deadshot, Mr. Freeze, I could go on. The focal point of this game, however, is the Joker, who is still sick from his exposure to Titan in the previous game, which, if you look at this clip from the end of the first game, should leave you with no surprised feelings whatsoever when you realize that he's still reeling from this a year later. Basically, all we find out is that the Joker's blood is contaminated with Titan still and has become infected to the point where it's killing him. We don't get exact details on how this happens, why this is happening, or how close he is to death, at least at the beginning of the game. But from what we can see, it's pretty clear that he's close. Now, early on in the game, Batman pursues Joker, finds him, gets knocked out, and then wakes up, finding that the Joker has transfused his blood into Batman, leaving him with the same disease or whatever the Joker has. Now, I could be a jerk and explain how this doesn't make any sense at all, that in the span of a few hours, Batman is almost dead from this, or that it's more likely that it's just a bad blood transfusion rather than Joker's actual sickness, because bad blood transfusions can lead to severe, severe repercussions in the span of just a few hours. But whatever. It's a game, right? Now, I actually really enjoyed this specific narrative trope because what they do is that they put both the protagonist and the antagonist on the same path aimed for the same goal, but they have different tactics enabled. It's like starting both players at A and then they both need to get to B, but the path that they take can be completely different. And some people might be willing to take moral routes while others are taking immoral routes. And it's that journey and the more and more desperate the characters become, that's what tells you whether or not these characters are actually worth their salt. If they're willing to maintain their moral beliefs, even in extremely stressful and trying situations. And to be honest, this is the perfect setup for a Batman story. Batman not wanting to kill anybody ever being forced into the same exact situation that the freaking Joker is in and seeing how those two characters handle this situation differently and how they approach the solution to it. 
And with this setup, we also see a side of Joker that we rarely get to experience. Usually, whether it's in film or video game portrayals of the Joker, we see him as a very jubilant, animated, and flamboyant character who's usually so careless with what he does that it turns everything into a joke. But as you would expect, when a character doesn't take anything seriously and you force them into a situation wherein they have to take it seriously, you see whether or not they are actually that way, what they're really made of and what they really care about. Seeing the Joker close to death to the point where he's coughing, hacking, and can feel it coming onto him to the point where he feels so desperate he needs to infect somebody else in order to make sure that they help him find the same cure that they need, it's a totally different experience than the Joker of the first game, or than the Joker that you saw in The Dark Knight, or back in the Tim Burton movies. It's incredibly unique. Now, this type of setup has, of course, been handled in the comic books, but for people who have not experienced those stories, it's a very unique and interesting way of setting the stage for the story to come. Now, after all of this, Batman decides that the only person who can synthesize this cure is Mr. Freeze. You go, you find him, and after discussing it with him, you figure out that the only way to complete this cure and make it more stable to the point where it's safe to consume is if you get a sample of Ra's al Ghul's blood, which has restorative properties somehow. And so we go to get a sample of Rachel Ghoul's blood, which takes several in-game hours and has us experiencing Talia and Rachel Ghoul, all of his minions, and including even a drug-fueled nightmare, which offers some very, very unique twists on the original gameplay design, and also the overall visual design of the encounter is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just look at this. And so you get the blood, and you take it to Mr. Freeze, he creates the cure, you two fight at some point, and then you find out that the cure was stolen by Harley Quinn before Batman could get it. And so Batman, really feeling the effects of the infection at this point, runs off to fight the Joker and to get the cure so that he can prevent himself from dying. And so while you're fighting the Joker in a very unique arena, which is one of my favorites, but we're going to talk a little bit about that later on in the video, Hugo Strange begins Protocol 10, and eventually Batman gets buried in rubble after a missile strikes the building that you're fighting in. Now, all during the last few hours of gameplay, you've been swapping occasionally to Catwoman to play through some select sequences if you have the Catwoman DLC enabled. Most of it's not too crazy important. You interact with Two-Face, then you interact with Poison Ivy. It's fun little cameos, but nothing too crazy. But at this point, after Batman's been buried in the rubble, you play as Catwoman running off to a vault where you can get some precious some things they never really tell you. You collect them, and then the player is faced with a choice, the only choice of this kind that you experience really in the whole game, where Catwoman is faced with a choice between leaving Arkham City and starting a new life that she always wanted with whatever this new fortune will bring her, or going and helping Batman, leaving behind her own selfish interests, at least for a little while. Now, because curiosity never kills cats, I decided to be curious and try going out the door where it would serve my own selfish intentions, leaving Batman on his own just to see what would happen. And basically what happens is that she walks up the stairs and then this little ditty plays. Screw him.
And so it literally rewinds and places Catwoman back right at the same point, and you can make the same decision over again. And you can do that as many times as you want. It'll just keep rewinding you and putting you back there. But I thought a fun little detail of this was something I found in an interview that one of the developers gave, wherein he explains that this option was just thrown out at a developer meeting while they were working on the game and this particular section. And originally, you weren't going to have the choice. She was going to set the bags down, and then the cutscene would continue playing while she runs off to save Batman. But they said, why don't we just give players the choice and have an option where she walks out the door and then an option where she doesn't. And they put it together in two days. Like, I'm not kidding. Two days, they put that little piece together, and then it turned into one of the only moral choices that you have in the game. Now, of course, it's not an RPG. Of course, there's no repercussions for making the right decision versus uh, the bad decision and, and vice versa. It's just kind of a fun little extra thing they put in there that they didn't have to. But I thought it was cool that they did that in two days. So, whatever. And so she runs off to save Batman. And... Wait, that's all it took? Just lifting that thing? He couldn't have done that? Okay, uh, whatever. Well, m well, maybe she fought off some guys we didn't see that could have killed Batman. Well, then why didn't they show us that? You know what, what? Never mind. Anyway, Batman runs off and takes out Strange in his tower in a stealth sequence that I unfortunately consider to be a low point in the main story. But don't worry, we'll get to this and I'll explain why a little bit later when we tackle the gameplay more specifically. We then get in to see Strange, we talk with him, and then Rachel Gould comes out of nowhere, stabs Strange, and then explains that he was the brains behind the operation from the very beginning. Strange then sets the tower to self-destruct for reasons. And as you fall, Batman grabs Ra's al Ghul and apparently is bracing to save him so that he can be captured. But Raish takes his sword, stabs himself through the stomach, and it wasn't very yippee ki -yay. He just kind of fell on a fence and died. It was kind of weird. I actually remember playing this section when the game first came out back in 2011. I was little 14-year-old Luke sitting there with the controller in my hand. And when Ra's al Ghul stabs himself through his stomach, I wasn't clear if he was trying to get through himself to Yippee-Kaye Batman behind him because Batman was further up and maybe he thought that stabbing himself would also stab Batman. It's kind of weird. Uh, but he does it so gently and, and just straight through. It's it's I, I think it is purely suicidal but i didn't understand why he needed to commit suicide in that moment if he was so distraught that protocol 10 failed then why wouldn't he just try to survive let batman save him and then go about his business and eventually try again if he does have the supernatural ability maybe he was terrified that being captured would leave him without his fountain of youth per se so he would slowly die and turn old and feel sick and terrible there's a lot of reasons and things going into it. I don't think it's that necessary. I think it's more that they had to tie up that knot and kind of pass him off out of the story. Point being, he falls and splats on the fence. At this point, we get a formal invite from the Joker to go to a theater. And, you know, I'll, I'll just play this clip and it's important. You'll see why I'm doing this in just a second. Hello, Batman. I know you can hear me. I've not caught you at a bad time, have I? I was worried that you may have forgotten about little old me. Take a look at your girlfriend, who, as you can see, is in danger of having a pretty little brain splattered all over this camera. <laughs> Ignore him, beloved. Let him die. Oh, how romantic. Only problem is, I've never felt better. And we both know you really can't ignore me, can you? So listen, Batman. 
I'm putting on a little show for you. It's going to be a doozy, a real red carpet affair. You'd better hurry, though. If you take too long, a leading lady may be found dead in the dressing room. <laughs> The prompt reads, quote, get the cure from Joker and stop him from becoming immoral. Immortal. (laughs) Stop him from being immortal. Immoral, guys. Don't be immoral. Stop him from becoming immortal. That's what I meant to say. Now, my problem with this is that in the video clip that we just played, the Joker never says outright that he's going to become immortal. He just says that he's going to put on a show for Batman and Talia. But... Somehow Batman receives from that small conversation that somehow the Joker is either going to achieve immortality through the cure, because I guess it has Rachel Ghoul's blood in it, or he's going to access the fountain of youth or fountain of, of healing powers and regeneration that Rachel Ghoul was using, which eventually does happen in the ending sequence of the game. But we have no indication that that's where this theater is and that underneath that theater is this fountain. It's never clearly specified. So it, to me, it just seems like a little detail where they they just said, yeah, stop him from becoming immortal to raise the stakes. But he never said that he was good. You get what I mean. And so we go, we get in after taking out some snipers. We step into the theater. The Joker demands the cure. Batman's a bit confused because, as we said earlier, he still thinks that Harley has the cure after she stole it from Mr. Freeze's workshop. But then Talia stabs the Joker in the back, seemingly killing him. Now, I want to stress, literally no one who played the game when it first came out believed that this was actually the death of the Joker. They saw some sort of plot twist coming because you don't kill off one of the most significant comic book characters in all of gaming in this way. But I think it's also important to stress that gamers going into this game knew that the Joker was likely going to be killed off in some way, shape, or form, likely near the end of the title. Because Mark Hamill, the guy that voiced the Joker, had said that this was going to be his last time playing the Joker. And it just seemed wrong after Mark Hamill played the role for, at this point, I believe it was decades. It just seemed wrong to continue the Joker in this series without him and to hire Troy Baker to come in and do it in his place. It just seemed wrong. So people assumed that this was likely going to uh, cause some end to the Joker storyline, but nobody knew how exactly that was going to happen. But I guess the point is anecdotally, no one that I know actually believed this fake out. They knew that the Joker was likely going to die, but people just couldn't believe that the Joker would do it in this way, especially because this little moment doesn't last for very long at all. Watch. Harley Quinn stole it for him. I took it back. It's over. Surprise! (laughs) Mr. J, you look perfect. Ring, ring. So how do you keep a secret from the world's greatest detective? Well, do you know? You stick it right in front of him, right under his long, pointy nose. And wait! Joker wants you to think he's sick. And wait! Gotcha! You fell for the old fake Joker gag, Batman! Tell you! I'm sorry, beloved. I didn't know. (laughs) Encore! More! Bravo! 
It was never you. <laughs> Not always. Well, sometimes. <laughs> uh, confusing, isn't it? I know I'd want to know just what the hell is going on if I were you. <laughs> Let's just say, at times like these, it's important to keep up <coughs> appearances. But first, if you would be so kind, hand over my jaw. And gentlemen, for one night only, standing in for yours truly, and doing a damn fine job of it, I give you a You weren't even supposed to be in here, Carl. Why sign up with Joker? <clears throat> the role of a lifetime! Now, I'll let this plot twist speak for itself because I think its success is highly contingent on the player that's experiencing it. So I want to hear your thoughts on this plot twist down in the comment section below. What did you think of it when you first experienced it? Did you see it coming? Did you know that this was going to happen after some of the seeds that they planted earlier in the story? For me personally, I thought that they handled this very, very delicately. I thought that all of the little hints they dropped throughout the story that are recapped in that flashback you just saw were handled very, very well and weren't clear in, in pointing this out. But at the same time, when this plot twist reveals itself and you see Talia get shot, fall, and you see the other Joker come out, and then you see Clayface's hand morph, it all of a sudden clicks and everything in the game that was previously like, what all of a sudden clicks and makes sense and everything is justified I, I absolutely love it but once again there is a bit of nostalgic bias for me to be straight up like I was 14 when I first played this game so for me to say that 14 year old Luke was surprised by this plot twist doesn't mean a lot if you were like 25 and had a PhD when you played this it might have been seen from a mile away for you but that's why I'm interested in your comments so make sure to leave them I will be reading them now, one last thing about this plot twist that I want to stress, and it's something that I just found while I was researching for this video. I had no idea this was a thing before this. The background for Clayface. In the clip that you just saw, he says, The role of a lifetime! The role of a lifetime. So I decided to look into the background of Clayface. And as the Batman fanatics among you know, Clayface in this current rendition and form started in Detective Comics number 40 back in 1940 as a character named Basil Carlo, who was a B-list actor who then goes crazy and insane when he finds out that a horror movie that he previously starred in was going to be remade without him. Of course, a bunch of stuff happens, and then he goes insane, gets dressed up, pretends to be other people, and eventually he goes and is able to synthesize with another character to get the sort of transformative powers that you see in this current form of Clayface. But at his core, Clayface is a failed actor. He's like a B-list actor who takes himself too seriously, and I thought that that was such a clever and unique and interesting way of tackling this fake out and plot twist because it plays into the Joker's insecurities of being sick and seemingly powerless. And then it also plays into the insecurities of Clayface where he just wants a big role, the role of a lifetime. And he's offered it by the Joker to play this insane maniac. It's just so cool to me. 
But with all of that said, you fight Clayface in one of my favorite boss fights of the whole game, visually and in terms of gameplay. And then during this fight, the Joker blows up the floor, sending everyone down to Rachel Ghoul's previously mentioned lair, at which point after you defeat Clayface, Joker tries to hop into the pool. Batman throws Talia's sword and drops a large electrical thing into the pool, causing everything to explode. And then this happens. Quick! What are you waiting for? Come on! I killed your girlfriend. Poison Gotham in hell. <laughs> it's not even breakfast. <laughs> but so what? We all know you'll save me. Every decision you've ever made ends with death and misery. People die. I stop you. You'll just break out and do it again. <laughs> Think of it as a running No! Are you happy now? Do you want to know something funny? Even after everything you've done, I would have saved you. <laughs> that actually is pretty funny. happened in there. When this Joker death happened, I lost it. Whenever a character that is super important and has a lot of fan support behind them is killed off, you have to handle it in a very unique and sort of reverent way. Even if the character is terrible and is the Joker serial killing maniac, you still have to approach it in a respectful way. Otherwise, people get upset. That's why that first fake out didn't work for so many people because people knew that you weren't going to kill off the Joker in that way. You would approach it with a little bit more Effort, maybe, is the word. 
And the way that Rocksteady chose to do it in this sequence, I, I thought was masterfully done and works so well, specifically in contrasting the Joker with Batman, which is the whole point of Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City specifically. The Joker is straight up pathetic in his last moments. He literally crawls on all fours and licks up the cure after the vial breaks, like a dog trying to hang on to life. He may be insane, but he's scared. He is so desperate to maintain control of everything that he hired an actor to play him in public so that his goons wouldn't question his competence or ability. And Batman was in the same position. He almost collapses several times in the last couple hours of the game, but he perseveres. More importantly, he never lets his desperation take him to immoral areas. He stays above it all, which is why he's an icon and a role model for millions. But after all of this, the story is over, and Batman can just go off and keep cleaning up Arkham City as much as he wants. The player's left to their own devices, and you're left feeling sort of empty, but still with an obligation to continue, because you know that there's still crime to fight, you just feel as though your partner in crime is missing now. And it's a strange feeling, but it's a feeling that you believe and, and can't understand Batman also feeling. He's been going up against this guy for years and years and years, and to finally have it put to rest must be a very strange experience. Now, as for a summation of my feelings on the narrative as a whole, I feel that it does motivate the gameplay, and there are some sequences which are downright brilliant, such as Clayface playing the role of the Joker, a plot twist that very few saw coming and that ties together very well with their characters and with the Joker's desperation in that moment. But at the same time, there are other areas that are fairly sloppy and that feel like filler, strictly speaking, strange and his story. Which, let's be honest, it doesn't even really qualify as a story. He's just a bad guy who was told by another bad guy what to do and how to do it. He's just a sad pawn. And at the end of the game, you're left feeling as though he was just a pathetic fool and not a mastermind. Which, in a way, diminishes the value of your own accomplishments and achievements within the game itself. Which is perhaps what's supposed to happen so that you feel this emptiness in you after you've uh, stopped the demolition of an entire section of the city and the murder of thousands, but nonetheless it still leaves a hole in the player. But all of these little criticisms I, I was only able to come across after playing this game through again twice for this video and really going through it with a fine-tooth comb trying to find things to be frustrated about. I still love this game and I still consider it a masterpiece, but as with all masterpieces they're not immune to criticism and by criticizing it and breaking it apart, it helps you understand it more, which after all is kind of the point of these videos, to tear apart something that we enjoy or that we like, figure out how it works and why it works, and more specifically how it could be improved. And as we go through the series, specifically in the next video going to Batman Arkham Origins, we can see how the developers learned from Batman Arkham City and brought those lessons into the next game. If they learned from it, and if they did, how they learned from it and applied that knowledge to the new experience. So yeah, once again, if you wanna know when that Origins critique is coming out, make sure to subscribe. But as with all narratives in video games, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are also gameplay mechanics that play into it, and a good game is able to implement all of these together so that the gameplay and the narrative works together 
through one common purpose. And so let's, I don't know what this is. And so let's tackle the gameplay. As I said earlier, the game feels like a straight continuation of Batman Arkham Asylum. It works very well as a sequel, so much so that the game's concept was originally developed before the release of Asylum sometime in early 2009, late 2008. There are actually blueprints and concept art for Batman Arkham City that you can find in a secret room in Batman Arkham Asylum. Basically, you go to Quincy Sharp's office, you go to this wall, and you have to place three of these bat-shaped explosive gunks on the wall in a very specific pattern and orientation. I had to do this several times to get it to work. But then when you detonate them, a hole blows in the wall, and you just walk on in. And in case you're wondering, yeah, detective vision doesn't show anything on the other side. Somehow it's like lead-lined and Batman's vision stuff can't see through. It's very well hidden. But anyway, you get through this wall, you walk in there and you see up on the wall a blueprint for what seems to be an expansion of the asylum with a long bridge leading to it. And then you also see the penitentiary labeled, the prison labeled, and then you also see just a huge wall outlining where Arkham City would eventually be. What's really cool about this little Easter egg is just how different these maps and the concept art differs from the finished product. You can see where they were initially going and you can also see after playing Batman Arkham City where they ended up and you can look in interviews to figure out why they made those decisions and steered in different directions. From the blueprints and the concept art in this room, we can see that this was likely still going to be called Arkham Asylum, but rather just an expansion of the original island. You can see concept art just above the blueprint, labeling it as such. Now what's cool about this is the fact that Batman Arkham City has a total gameplay area of roughly five times the space that was in Batman Arkham Asylum. And so by adding on to the Asylum map, five times the space, it could have created some really interesting interplay between the two areas where there's clear zones in between. But if you look at some of the developer logs from the interviews that the developers gave during the development process and just after, they discussed this process and how they decided eventually to just cut off the asylum and leave it with just the city because they felt as though they had already tackled the island and there was no way to really incorporate it into the new vision of gameplay wherein there's much more vertical exploration where you're flying around having a huge bridge in between the two couldn't really be achieved unless you were to scatter it and, and control it in a very unique way it just wasn't going to work the way that they wanted and clearly the most obvious and frequently asked question leading up to the release of Batman Arkham City was whether or not we were going to get to play in the Batmobile, which is something that was originally shown off in the opening cinematic of Asylum. And it seems as though if there was ever a time to use the Batmobile, it was going to be in Batman Arkham City because it's a city and there would seemingly be a lot of space. But don't worry, we're going to talk about that. And I actually have a quote from a developer. Just a second. But from the developer interviews that I've read, the most clearly stated reason for why they cut Asylum out of the original concept for Batman Arkham City was strictly because they had already gone there and that navigation, once they had started to see the prototype of the gliding and grapple hook mechanic in play, they realized that to go back to Asylum couldn't be done without it feeling as though it was weighing down the overall experience. Because if they wanted to implement that island original concept into the new Arkham City, they would have to completely redesign it with a much more vertical design. And at that point, it's not Arkham Asylum anymore, at least as we had just seen it two years before in their first game. 
But beyond this, we also have new tools at our disposal, such as freeze grenades, the REC gun, which stands for remote electrical charge, and the disruptor, which disables guns and explosives. And all of these things help you to create a very dynamic gameplay experience while feeling uniquely Batman. One of the best things about these tools is that they can implement so well into combat. Some players will use them extensively, others will barely touch them at all, except for when absolutely necessary. The game occasionally tries to remind the player that they should be using these tools in combat, the most clear example being the fight with Mr. Freeze, where you have to use your rec gun to pull him towards you, and you have to use all of these different tactics in order to take him down because he learns every time that you use one of these methods on him. But the game is not afraid to just let the player do what they feel is best and play the way that they want to. I, for one, don't tend to use a lot of these tools when I am going through the combat sequences. I tend to focus purely on building up the combo counter, raising XP points, and then building up my armor and overall damage resistance. Now from the interviews, we can learn that they had a lot of other tools that were initially implemented into the game that were eventually cut out because they didn't feel honest to the character of Batman. And this brings us to the idea of the Batmobile, which wasn't used because, quote, it ain't a driving game. This and the following quote comes from Dax Jin, who was the marketing game manager over at Rocksteady Games leading up to the release of Batman Arkham City. He went on to say, quote, You've seen the work we put into the gliding system, and that works just fine for moving the character around the city. Also, lots of the streets in Arkham City are filled with rubble and craters, so the Batmobile wouldn't be the best mode of transport. It wouldn't make for very fun driving, even if we put the Batmobile in the game. In all seriousness, though, the moment you put Batman in a car, it becomes an entirely different kind of game. So there are no vehicles in the game whatsoever, end quote. Now, of course, I haven't talked about Batman Arkham Knight yet, which is a video that's going to be coming down the road. Again, subscribe if you want to eventually see that one. But obviously, Batman Arkham Knight was known for its implementation of the Batmobile, which, as their marketing manager in this interview says, creates an entirely different game because Batman all of a sudden has an entirely different mode of transport and different mode of, of fighting his enemies. And it, it's just different. It just changes everything. And... I think it was the right choice, to be perfectly honest, to steer clear of the Batmobile and focus purely on Batman and traversing the way you would expect and think Batman traverses in his day-to-day -day life. I, I guess it's night-to-night -night life, but whatever. Now, this brings us to stealth, and in my opinion, the most important discussion when it comes to Batman Arkham City's gameplay. Of course, I'm talking about Detective Vision. In Batman Arkham Asylum, one of my biggest criticisms of the gameplay system was that detective vision was far too useful. Specifically, as you went through the game, there was really no need or obligation or utility to turning it off. You could go through effectively the entire game with detective vision switched on, and it would not only make the gameplay easier, but in some sequences, it was necessary. And this is a concept that's echoed by several of the developers who said many times in interviews leading up to the game that they had to do a lot of work with Detective Vision to still make it useful and not feel as though they were nerfing it from the first game. Because after all, Batman still is using it. He's still developing it. And as you would expect, he's likely still using it in day-to-day -day life. But you still need to fix the problem that you had in the first game where it was so useful that players didn't have a reason to turn it off. 
And so what they did to fix it was actually fairly sneaky and I think was very, very intelligent. They made detective vision so that it blurs at long distances so you can't use it while you're traveling through the city and expect it to work the same way. And while you're traversing specifically, there's no compass on the map. There's no UI to tell you where your waypoint is they turn all of that off so really all it's useful for is spotting enemies from a distance while you're traversing and when you're not doing that you just turn it off and enjoy the visuals for what they are which even in 2019 is pretty stunning i will admit now for me i still feel as though it is overused and it's still too useful i found myself using it far more than i would have liked to not because I just stumbled into it or because I'm incapable of turning it off, but rather because in many gameplay sequences, it's straight up necessary, especially on harder difficulties in sequences that are specifically designed for stealth. Which I suppose brings us perfectly to the Strange Tower sequence. As I said earlier in the video, this is one of the low points in the game for me, specifically because it has such low stakes. From the top of the game, we know that Strange is a major player in Arkham City. If anything, he's the major player in Arkham City. And we know that he's set up to be the primary protagonist. But we know going into this final sequence as we climb up Strange Tower, we know that this isn't going to be the end of the game because we haven't taken down Joker yet. And that is a major plot sequence that still has to be resolved. As a result, you go into this chapter of the game knowing full well that it's not actually the end even though everything is trying to point that it will be the end that this is supposed to be some big climactic finish to the game and visually it is that you go up to the top of the tower you swing around and the vistas and views are incredible it's visually probably my favorite moment in the whole game but in terms of gameplay it is so boring it's hard to quantify the game doesn't do anything different. It just throws a bunch of people with guns up in the tower. You swing around the outside, then crawl around the inside, slowly picking them off one by one. And if you are looking to spam it, you basically just go to one of the balconies, you hang off the edge, and then you wait for one of the guards to walk up to the edge. You pull them off and you just repeat that process until everybody's gone. Now, I'm not recommending that you spam the game in that way, but when you are capable of spamming a game and manipulating the mechanic to the point where it can be abused so easily, I don't think that it's saying you should do that. More than anything, it's a criticism of the game for allowing that manipulation to occur. A game like Neo is very aware that players are going to try to just sprint through entire areas to get to the next boss to avoid all of the minutia of chopping down enemies to rack up souls or whatever the currency is in Neo. And so in a response to this, they made it so that the enemies follow you quite simply for a long ways. And if you end up getting to a mini boss or a boss, God forbid, they stack on top of that. And then you have to take them all out at the same time. And you very quickly regret it because the game is structured in a way where they prevent that abuse. And this is one thing that I think a lot of people love about the Arkham games and hate about it at the same time is that there are seemingly a lot of these holes in the gameplay that can just be abused, rinsed and repeated ad nauseum. And that's where I'm interested in hearing your opinion. Do you think that it's laziness on the side of the developers for not preventing that sort of mechanic? Surely the developers over at Rocksteady are capable of thinking of ways around this. They did it with the Mr. Freeze fight where they actually made it so every time you used some sort of combat ability, he learned from it and prevented it from happening again. So they're capable of doing it, which makes me think that it's a conscious decision to leave the ability to abuse that system 
in the game. I don't know, leave me your thoughts down in the comment section below. I'm interested in hearing them. So in summation, I feel that this whole sequence is supposed to, and it's built up visually and thematically and narratively to be this huge climactic moment where everything comes together and you're left feeling super accomplished that you took down the big bad guy who's trying to kill thousands of people. But instead, it leaves you feeling as though you're playing just another small chapter in the game. The gameplay does nothing differently. It's like in a movie when there's a character that's put in a tough situation very early on in the film and you watch it and you know that they're in a dangerous situation but you also know your your stupid brain is like well they're the protagonist to the film they're not going to kill them off in the first 30 minutes of this two and a half hour movie so clearly he's going to get out of this or she's going to get out of this just fine and it automatically reduces the stakes and there's no real way to avoid that except in video games you have a lot more tools at your disposal and i suppose if i'm trying to criticize the game i I would be a fool not to bring it up, so there you go. But beyond these awkward stilted sequences, the AI is greatly improved and is much faster and more capable of recognizing unique stimuli and intelligently responding to it, which always creates a more interesting, dynamic, and fun experience when playing any sort of stealth game. Moreover, the aforementioned tools that have been added to Batman's repertoire are a great addition and create all sorts of unique possibilities that I'm still, to be perfectly honest, uncovering every time I go through this game. And this leads me into the idea of generalized combat, which is regular hand-to-hand -hand fighting. And as always, it's amazing. Now, I don't need to discuss the free flow combat system much at all. You are likely familiar with it, and if you're not, what are you doing watching this video? Basically, it's highly simplified. There is a strike button, there is a parry button, and then there's many other options for dodging, blocking, rolling, for using different tools, all layering into this base system, which is very, very simple. These systems can be used very poorly, as we saw in the early renditions of it back with Assassin's Creed, but it can also be done very, very well, as it is here. Specifically, what separates that bad from amazing experience is the animation. I don't know what sort of magic they're using over at Rocksteady, but the fluid free flow animation system that they use, allowing for all sorts of combos and parries to be tied together seamlessly, where it actually feels as though a person is moving and doing that, it's absolutely phenomenal. What's even more impressive is that they doubled the number of combat animations from Batman Arkham Asylum to Batman Arkham City. And then also with characters such as Robin in the Harley Quinn's Revenge DLC and Catwoman in her own respective DLC and expansion all have their own unique, completely original combat moves and systems to be used at your leisure. And I really do feel that the cinematic animations in these games, even going on a decade later, have really aged quite well. If you look at the ending sequence that we looked at earlier with the Joker when he passes away, there's a, so many subtleties that have been put in here. Look at, for instance, this. His lip twitches in such a delicate but precise way as the last spurts of life are leaving his body. It's such an eerie, creepy, but brilliant detail. I can't even express how much I love it and how impressive it is that this was done back on like the 360 and the PS3 in 2011. But moving on, the idea of bosses. This was probably my largest criticism in terms of combat of the original Arkham Asylum game was specifically that the bosses felt very shallow, just bad. The last fight with Joker is 
a joke and is frankly terrible. Go watch my critique of, of Asylum if you didn't see it. I, I just, yeah, I just, I was not impressed. But in this game, they took everything to a whole new level. That was criticism that was immediately apparent when Asylum launched, but the rest of the game was so phenomenally well-built that people were willing to forgive them for it. But going into City, you can tell they made a conscious decision to fix that very unique problem. Everything from the Clayface fight to the Rachel Ghoul fight to the Solomon Grundy fight to the Mr. Freeze fight, all are very unique, but don't feel as though they rely purely on a singular gimmick in order to make the them work. They're visually interesting and unique and separated from each other very clearly, and they're also, in terms of gameplay and mechanics, very differentiated in terms of the tactics needed to successfully complete them. And honestly, I don't know what else to say. They're just phenomenally well done, and I have to give Rocksteady praise because they knocked this out of the park, specifically in contrast with the original game. They came so far from where they started. It is amazing. Now, as for side content, there's a lot to be discussed, specifically with side quests and the Riddler challenges. This game has roughly 20 hours of side content after you finish the main story. For some people who are looking for a completionist run, it could be as much as 30 to 40 hours. As for the Riddler challenges, there are 440 unique challenges and puzzles that range from throwing a single batarang and stepping on a button to completing a complex combination of moves in order to reach a predetermined area before a predetermined amount of time runs out. Now, according to various interviews, we know that these were created and placed into the game towards the end of development, and it shows. The map still feels like a city instead of a confusing mess of corridors designed to hide items. And I like to think of it as an extension of how the Riddler would have developed these puzzles himself, carefully and using what was available to him without manipulating most of the city, just using what was there. And it's also important to stress that these Riddler challenges, some very, very simple and some fairly complex, were all designed to encourage creativity and not scouring. It was very important to the development team that they didn't have players trying to find every nook and cranny hoping to find a Riddler trophy as they did in the first game, rather that they were completing puzzles and using the tools that were available to them in order to solve puzzles that challenged them and offered some unique gameplay. And as for side quests, there are many things that you can do simply while exploring the world, either during the main quest or just after it. For instance, Deadshot has an entire side quest that you can go on by investigating crime scenes where he's taken out political asylum seekers, trying to figure out where he shot from, where he keeps his weapons, and who his next target is going to be, eventually figuring out exactly where he is going to be and when, at which point you take him out, and it's all side content. It's not pulled into the main story. It's completely optional. And beyond just these Riddler challenges and the side quests within the core game of Batman Arkham City, from the main menu you can engage in challenge modes, which are also under the purview of the Riddler's challenges, which allow you to tackle very unique instances and circumstances that challenge your skills in the combat and stealth mechanics of the game. It's also really fun because you can do these as various characters and in different skins, which offers a little bit of flavor. But perhaps the most important, at least for me, element of Batman Arkham City and what makes it so special is its charm and personality. One of my favorite side quests in the entire game is where you go and you find the Mad Hatter. 
As I was originally exploring the game world and the map on all sorts of rooftops and on streets, I was finding picnic blankets, baskets, teacups, and they were left everywhere very strangely, but they were always looking towards a specific area. And eventually, if you pursue the side quest, you can find yourself captured by the Mad Hatter, drinking tea with him and his buddies, and engaging in a very unique combat sequence, which visually is probably my favorite Riddler challenge arena. But more than anything, what I love about this is that it's completely optional and it offers such a unique perspective on the world of Batman and the world in which you are exploring. It's such a crazy event to just experience that it leaves the player feeling just as baffled as Batman. This is also reflected in the unique dialogue that you find as you travel through the city, and also in the fact that each of the villains are given their own time to shine, and some are developed well beyond what was strictly necessary. For instance, look at Freeze and Nora. Nora, in case you're not aware, is Mr. Freeze's wife, who's also been frozen and has been captured by some goons. Early on in your experience with Mr. Freeze, he asks Batman if he'd be able to go rescue her for him, and at one point you fight Mr. Freeze over this dispute. After the events of the main game, you can either leave Mr. Freeze to himself and not help him find Nora, or you can go actually hunt her down find her location, take out the thugs that were guarding her and keeping her prisoner effectively, and then go back and tell Mr. Freeze where his wife is, at which point he, it is safe to assume, goes off and rescues her. He thanks you profusely, and it creates a very unique, special, and, and almost magical moment where Batman is helping somebody who was earlier considered his foe, but he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart, once again because he rises above it all, and that's why he is such an icon and a hero to so many people. And this care is also shown even to Harley Quinn in the expansion that also comes with the Game of the Year edition, Harley Quinn's Revenge. It's very, very short. You play as Robin, you go through and you take her down and you play as Batman and Robin. It's, it's fun. It's very, very short, but it really makes you feel for Harley Quinn after she's lost the love of her life. However crazy she is and however weird that relationship was, he was the love of her life and she lost it. Altogether, the game is phenomenal. It's a masterpiece, and if you haven't played it, you shouldn't have watched this video. You should have gone and played it. But those are just my thoughts. As I said throughout the video, I am very interested in hearing your thoughts on all of this. I do honestly value all of your opinions. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything, leave it down below. Like the video if you liked it. And if you want to see more like this, as I said, subscribe. And let me know what game you would like to see covered in an upcoming critique. These take a lot of work, so perhaps support me down in the comment section below with... Uh, Patreon description box. I'm bad at outros, guys. I'm going to cut it there. I love you all. I'm very tired. This has taken like four hours to shoot, so I'm going to sleep after drinking my water. Good night. <laughs>